Hey, Nick, have you ever noticed, right, how sometimes when you're sitting in the audience at a live comedy gig, everyone around you is laughing, but you don't join in, even though you think the comic is funny? What's all that about, eh? Have you ever noticed that, have you? No. Ah, Music. So, hello everyone, and welcome to Call in the Night Boys. Me, Gavin. Usually, Nick, we, we would be talking about a thing that one of us likes and is introducing to the other person and talking about whether we like it uh, or what we like and what we don't like about this particular thing. Um, and this time, I'd like to talk about things that you feel you should like, but sometimes don't. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about something I've realized over the years, which is that I don't particularly like the experience of live comedy all that much. Do you know what I mean? I do. We, we could probably change around this podcast because I think we've run out of things that we, we both like <laughs> and the rest of the world we hate, <laughs> including live comedy. But then that just becomes like uh, sort of bitter middle-aged men. Two <laughs> middle-aged men. <laughs> whining about talking talking about millennials but yeah so uh live comedy i mean you know i like i do like stand-up um whether it's live or or televised stand-up um i do like sort of comic performances i mean you you know david sadaris i think who who sort of tells comic narratives um yes he's good back in the day um uh, do you remember when Henry Rollins used to do those like spoken word tours? Um, I did, but I never actually saw him. And... I did. I knew. Yeah, he was very good. Yeah, it was quite earnest, but like it, it was, it was, it was quite pointed as well. So it was. Um, yeah, I kind of I like that sort of thing, but um, I think there's something there's a sort of a, a gulf for me between um, enjoying well. Liking what a stand-up is doing in comic terms and appreciating the skill of doing it, um, and that sort of enjoying feeling obliged to laugh along with everyone else as as they're laughing at the comic in the live gig. There's some, just something a bit awful about that. Mm. I'm not entirely sure why. Well, I, yeah, I don't want you. Th- I don't want people to think that I'm utterly humorless. Well, most people make use of humor in their life in one way or another, just as a way of sort of getting you through the day or through the week or or sort of easing your way through difficult tense situations um, sometimes it's highly inappropriate to be humorous in those situations sometimes it's kind of the only way to get past sort of uttering cliches or or just not having anything to say but um i laughed all the way through my first time having sex really yeah yeah i laughed like a hyena <laughs> <laughs> I think there is something slightly odd or slightly disturbing about people who just don't do humour, full stop, you know, yeah. never make jokes, don't laugh at jokes. There was a time in uh, early in my career as, um, as a shit journalist when uh, I was working on a magazine for a niche uh, part of the financial services industry. Um, and we produced this anniversary cover 
um, for the magazine, which um, one of the other editors suggests we kind of adapt the Sergeant Pepper's album cover with, you know, all the faces of different celebrities and, um, and replace them with sort of people from the industry that I was writing about. Um, and for, for whatever reason, I didn't include this one person. I can't remember why. I thought maybe I just had an instinct um, about what their reaction would be. But I remember her seeing the the um, the magazine cover when it was delivered to her office, and emailing me and saying it was a good thing that uh, we hadn't included her as one of the people on the Sergeant Pepper style album cover because she quotes doesn't have a sense of humour, which I thought was just a really weird thing to say. I mean, that's an odd thing to say, right? It is, but maybe she was pranking you. Maybe she was saying, oh, yeah, thanks for not including me because I don't have a sense of humour. No, I think she was deadly serious. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like got to know her tone in emails by then, and, right. and it was pretty serious. So, I mean, so you've got that extreme of the person who just doesn't do humour at all. Um, right. And, you know, but obviously why not you know life is composed of people um on a very wide spectrum and some people just like is humor is not a part of their life but a lot of people like live comedy especially uh well like stand-up comedy rather than um you know recordings of sitcoms or whatever Mm. um and and yet i'm someone who doesn't especially um and i'm just wondering what does that mean? Is it the context for you? Because you say you do enjoy it sometimes. Is it, is, that, is it the context of being in this crowd? I think it's the context of sort of feeling obliged to react when everybody else reacts, mm. maybe. You know, like in a football crowd where every, everybody like kind of roars with approval when a goal is scored. Um, I'd be more likely to be sitting there kind of smiling in appreciation of the goal <laughs> that's just been scored. Yes, exactly. I'd look up for my book. (laughs) (laughs) Peter has a ball. Peter likes the ball. Here is the dog. The dog has the ball. Do you think it's weird that you don't get into it or you you just don't respond to it in the same manner as other people in the room? Or you fight, you just, you don't like the compulsion to laugh along? I think it's partly the compulsion, yeah. I might be smiling, but I'm not sort of like, it's not like full-on kind of belly laughs. When do you belly laugh? When do you ruffle? Uh, well, I'd actually probably more likely to do that listen to things like podcasts, like Atletico Mints. And it's, it's often stuff which is just really silly, not really well-crafted comedy. Mm. Or, you know, really silly sitcoms like um the it crowd or toast of london or something like that mm. yeah i, I like mean you know that too. stuff is that stuff is very well written you know it's not i'm not saying it's not well crafted mm. but i don't know that anyone would argue that it's you know the acme of comedy but then comedy acting is a very different thing to to stand up stand up is a lot more in your face mm. and it invites mm. you know it's less passive it you you need to be involved maybe it's that feeling of you have to be involved that I don't particularly like. When I sit down to eat, I get sexy. When I go to bed, I get hungry. <laughs> I saw a man lying in the street, and I said, can I help you? He said, no, I just found a parking space. Now I sent my wife to go buy a car. 
It's just murderous what's going on with people these days. Just the other day, right here in Xenia, Ohio, a, a man walked up to me and said, I am eating in three days. I said, force yourself. Another man walked up to me and said, I am eating in a week. I said, don't worry, it tastes the same. <laughs> All right, we're rolling. I love this crowd. Why is stand-up the non-plus ultra of comedy? Why why is it sort of seen as being the acme of the uh, the sort of comedy profession? Um, what what do you think? Why is that? Um, where did I write that? <laughs> it's in your notes. Um, you know, in order to shield themselves from heckles and uh, from uh, from abuse or from jokes falling flat. Stand-ups have to present generally, not not every, all of them, but most of them have to present quite a kind of cock of the walk, laddish persona, even the women, I would say. Um, you know, whether that's Roisin Connolly or Sarah Millican or, or, or Sarah Pascoe or whatever. Um, and I find that a bit alienating as well. I don't really, because it just feels, there's something of machismo about mm. it, you know? And I think, that's, I think that's the thing. It's a machismo. It's a bit like an extreme sport, isn't it? Live stand-up. I don't like the swagger. Yeah, this is something that David Mitchell was talking about. He's got this um, series on Radio 4 at the moment, which is about the meeting. Um, his argument was that comics tend to be extroverts because, you know, you have to can take you have to can take control of the meeting you have to manage the room right, um, right and you have to be seen to be confident in what you're doing because otherwise you lose the audience mm. so i think inevitably you become that sort of as you say that kind of cock of the walk overconfident sometimes often slight quite laddish and yeah and macho unless you adopt a sort of a persona of some kind which is just sort of and inhabit that instead Thinking like people like Emo Phillips, for example, who go down the sort of like weird route. Yeah, yeah, that's the extreme example. I also think of people like Mark Watson, who is deliberately like unsure on stage, but he does mm. it very well. I've had an up and down year. Uh, I was recently voted, this is true, in the 50 sexiest Jews on Twitter. So, uh, <laughs> I know it's not sort of, no, nah, it's not, you wouldn't clap it, but it's nice. I, um, sort of mixed feelings. It's nice to be called sexy, isn't it? With any uh, number of caveats. But obviously sexiest Jews and then on Twitter is quite a limited uh, subset <laughs> of another quite limited subset. Also, I'm not Jewish. That was the main thing. I, uh, <laughs> I still haven't told them. I don't know whether to tell them or not. I'm hoping this clip will do it. I... We, the only ever time I've been in a similar situation is I was once in a celebrity magazine in the UK. But again, very mixed feelings. I was in a, a roundup of uh, crushes we shouldn't really have. <laughs> what the fuck is that meant to mean? I don't see myself as a great beauty, but a crush you shouldn't have is it Mugabe or something. Or <laughs> your horse. I guess when I think about what the kind of comedy that's. Um that appeals to me that I'm kind of comfortable with. It's, it's weirdly, it's that sort of really awkward stuff like Alan Partridge and Kirby enthusiasm where um, it makes you really uncomfortable. Um, but you're, yeah. you're sort of, 
you know the discomfort is is contained because it's you know it's a recorded television program and it, you're not in the room with the uncomfortableness in fact i would even leave the room uh when faulty towers was on when i was a kid uh when you got to the really excruciating really? bits uh, because I was just so embarrassed <laughs> that I kind of had, I couldn't actually, still now actually occasionally put my hands over my eyes when you get to a really awkward bit in something like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where you just feel like right. <laughs> the disapproval of the entire world is brought to bear on the, on the character who's just, um, whatever character it is, whether it's Alan Partridge or um, the guy in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Um is brought to bear and then they feel like they should be crushed by it. But of course they're not because they're characters, but you, you almost take on some of their, um, the embarrassment they should be feeling. I, I do like those comedies as well. I like those and silly comedies like Rick Reeves and Bob Morse. Right. And, and Monty Python, but I also like, um, you know, the original office and, uh, which again is that comedy of embarrassment, isn't it? Um, yeah, because the thing is, that's how I feel most of the time. <laughs> so I can relate to it like that. Um, and that's what's interesting is that, you know, someone like Alan Partridge is that he's um, he's monstrous. He's frequently monstrous, but he's not a monster. There is something slightly sympathetic even about Alan Partridge. Um, you know, the fact that for instance, he lives in a travel tavern or whatever and all this sort of thing. You know, there's always there's always a kind of some sadness in their life. But well, he's deeply pathetic. Which redeems their awfulness. Same with what's-his-name in The Office. They're kind of, you know, and actually there are, there are people who are kind of more powerful and more confident but who are worse. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? in their own way or maybe Partridge would be as bad if he ever got that break you know or, or um, David Brent probably um, yeah but they haven't got that break and so they're the, well they keep screwing it up so that's the kind of pathos of it you know well they they invite you to have some level of empathy um, and, and that's that's what's interesting about the stand-up thing is that even observational comedy where you're laughing because that you know that's so right that's just that's exactly how it is you're not necessarily empathizing with the person on the stage they're still somewhat removed from you and and somewhat distant from you um they're still the performer and you're still the audience you're not kind of all friends together even if you can relate completely to the the thing that they're the observation that they're making it's a bit like it you know they've always said stand-up comedy is the new rock and roll yeah I mean, that's the thing. It, actually, it is a bit like that because they are slightly at what, even if they don't stress around like rock stars, they are at slightly at one remove and yet they want you to relate to what they're saying. Mm. I think that's also what I find slightly paradoxical. And to, you know, they want it to be relatable. I mean, maybe not someone like Stuart Lee, but they want it to be relatable. And yet they're kind of this superstar who's or maybe, or not even a superstar, but, you know, say like Michael McIntyre or whatever. Someone like that is very keen to show, and, you know, he can do it quite well, but he's very keen to show how normal his life is. Mm. I think the same things on the bus as you do or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I find a bit boring quite, I find boring quite quickly. I prefer it when people mess around with your expectations. 
you know, because mm. then for me, they're more like virtuoso musicians. If they're messing around with your expectations, they're more like virtuoso mu- musicians. They're kind of surprising you. And... Well, this brings us on to Sh- Stuart Lee. <laughs> I was just going to say, Michael McIntyre is like the status quo in every sense of comedy. You see, I quite, I quite like Michael McIntyre, but, but, uh, but I'm aware that Stuart Lee, uh, possibly as a pose, but like, goes on about how much he hates the the comedy of people like michael michael mcintyre i think he genuinely doesn't like michael mcintyre and he doesn't he genuinely doesn't like russell brand or russell howard but it is also a comic pose for his comedy yeah whereas i don't think he necessarily dislikes james corden um he just finds it amusing to say how much he dislikes the fact that james corden likes him which i personally quite find quite funny and we'll, that, is, <laughs> that is funny. James Corden's there. Do you know him, James Corden? You know, I don't know James Corden personally, right, but he's always going on in interviews about how brilliant he thinks I am, right? And the feeling is not reciprocated. <laughs> Britain's loss is America's loss also. <laughs> He's there clapping away, James Corden. Honestly, if you Google James Corden and my name, you find all these interviews, you know, there's people going to him, what's your favourite thing? And he goes, oh, Stuart Lee's brilliant, you know, trying to make out he's clever. (laughs) Imagine James Corden watching me. Like a dog listening to classical music. Ridiculous, isn't it? Lie, PR bullshit. But I mean, he's um, he, he's an interesting comic in lots of ways because he is he divides people in a way that um, someone like Michael McIntyre probably doesn't. I think you either like Michael McIntyre or you don't. You know, you either find him a bit sort of anodyne or you think he's hilarious. Um, and I actually think he's quite funny, but his as you say, his humor is very pedestrian. But um, you've got the the sort of divisive people like Frankie Boyle, who who's just um, who just tends to push things to the limit um, and say things that are, for some people are beyond the pale, um, mm. and he can be quite cruel. Stuart Lee's very very different to that. He, I mean, he does he can be cruel and he can sort of say things that are beyond the pale, but he's also quite right on. So. Uh, people well, like so to characterize fr- so is Frankie Boyle these days. Well, he is when he writes. Yes, certainly. Uh, like he writes. But pieces have of you garden. seen his shows? I mean, have you seen his shows? New World Order. He's, no, he's, no. To be honest, I think he. I once had a, an argument, stroke discussion about Frankie Boyle with this German woman I worked with, who was very right on, who didn't like him at all. Mm. And I said, "Well, no, actually, some of his stuff when he's." It's very political and it's very, it's actually quite left wing. And she was kind of surprised, but I think, I don't know, but. Um, oh, he is, but I that think, doesn't necessarily mean that he's right on, right? No, I think what he does, and some other comedians that I like, I do like Frankie Boyle, and some other comedians like Bill Burr, what they do is that they say something outrageous. So, I mean, sometimes they just say something outrageous, but most of the time they say something outrageous in order to get a reaction and then they construct a kind of routine 
I, th- I think it's also uh, kind of something of a chess move in that you push out a pawn to see, you know, if somebody like brings out their their king or their queen or their queen rather to uh, to kind of uh, crush it, and then you can kind of get a measure of like how they react to certain stimuli. Um, yeah, like yeah. Sort of automatic outrage button gets pressed. Like someone like Bill Burr, for instance, has this really funny skit about um, how he's fed up with movies about white people being racists. Right. And he's white, he's like Irish American or whatever. And, you know, to begin with, it's like, well, you know, a lot of <laughs> they're just reflecting, you know, the, the, the classic progressive response to that is like, well, there is a lot of racism. But what he does with that is quite amusing because basically he he brings it down to talking about films like Dangerous Minds, you know that one with <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer and all that sort of thing, and about how Hollywood treats racism in movies. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And it's actually very clever and very funny, um, in my opinion, very funny. But and um, so he kind of makes this very bold, crass statement, and then kind of walks it back and then walks it forward so to speak that's kind of and i think frankie Boyle does that as well very mm. much you know i mean so you know he might just say one thing to get a laugh but most of the time i think he's doing that you know i read about the death of robin williams and i thought why can't james Corden get depressed <laughs> i did that in london a guy get really fucking angry <laughs> my wife is depressed Turns out the correct response to that heckle is not no fucking wonder. <laughs> he said, this is all true, he went, the irony is depression's a very serious illness. I said, you don't seem to understand what irony means. <laughs> the irony here is that you're making me feel depressed. <laughs> and he walked out. And he walked out, he turned around and went, Suicide can never be funny! I said, well, kill yourself and see if I laugh. <laughs> Why is it always comedy that brings out the worst in everybody? <laughs> People don't go along to Hamlet and shout, My husband feels melancholy! We were talking about Stuart Lee. Um, and actually, I think it kind of harks back to what something I was saying earlier on about certain comics who buck that trend of being the sort of overly confident slightly macho commanding figure is generally ones who adopt persona of sorts and i think <laughs> Stuart lee's sort of persona he def- definitely had does have an on-stage persona and it's sort of part of his slightly annoying but very clever sort of smug uh i'm a comedy genius um mentality that his persona is sort of fairly close mm. to him but he just makes it more miserable more sort of self-regarding bitchy about the comedy world in general but while he's doing that he kind of like subverts mm. the the normal sort of tropes of comedy and and kind of exposes them as he does it it's it's very clever but it's also mm. something that people find quite annoying about him because it's it's very sort of meta and um at the same time, he also plays up to mm. that sort of smug liberal Remainer kind of uh, persona that he's perceived to be and is to some extent. I like, I like, I do like Stuart Lee. I mean, the, I remember being annoyed with him um, years ago when he had his first comedy vehicle, his TV yeah. show. 
I remember I was that's really the one that's into... shut in, shot in Stoke, sort of around Stoke Newington, that comedy club near Stoke Newington, isn't it? I think. Probably, I, I don't know, but the first series of that, I, I genuinely think is very bad. Mostly, the jokes aren't very good, and in order to make us feel pain, I mean, maybe it's a really amazing new way of doing comedy but in order to make us feel even more pain he then uh, in the original series he had dramatic reconstructions of the jokes with people i also like like simon munry and kevin elder and stuff acting right. out the joke for people who were obviously too stupid or whatever to 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 follow his flow of that sounds a bit like the Mary Whitehouse uh, experience. They it was at, it was it was excruciating, and I don't think it was supposed to be excruciating. I mean, not to say that it was. There were some good jokes in there, but and I remember like I I, I felt a great antipathy towards him around that time because I thought it was because it was pretty bad, and I felt a personal antipathy because I'd been going around in the office saying, "Oh, you've got to watch this." Stuart Lee thing that's coming up next week. It's really good. He's like the best comic comedian out there. So I'd, I'd got some skin in the game, should we say, um, expressing my love for Stuart Lee. And then he came out with something which was pretty mediocre and sometimes pretty bad. And then I think his following series from that are actually generally damn good, you know. Um, so, so I think that's why I took, I, I, I took, uh, umbrage at that but uh, i suppose also i think that's the one um i think he does have a go other comedians in that one but he does in all the series mm. that program but um and i didn't really like that well i just couldn't again it's a bit like you're talking about sport it's like i just i just don't care enough i just so fucking what you know i remember he'd done this stand-up where he'd really attacked richard littlejohn who'd written these awful things about women who were murdered in uh, in Ipswich back in the 2000s right. by a serial killer and it's a brilliant piece of like attack comedy and then he was having a go at Russell Howard and I just thought I don't like Russell Howard but you know he's not Jim Davidson and he's not Richard Littlejohn it's like who yeah. gives a fucking shit but then I've sort of I've come to kind of accept that that is part of his you know supposed comedy genius persona that he's projecting well, I think he likes to position himself as a, as the outsider, mm. even though, okay, his his kind of his career did stall a bit in the uh, like early two thousands, but like he's still a hugely successful uh, comedian. I saw him live in Stoke Newington in about two thousand five when he was just start, starting to make his way back after Jerry Springer the Opera, right, and um, no doubt with Simon th- Munnery on the bill as well. No, actually, it was just him, I think. And he was absolutely amazing. He was really funny. That's what got me, that's what got me proselytizing about him. And then he comes up with his TV show, which I thought was quite bad. <laughs> you know, I have to take him, all of him, really, and accept that. You know, it's, and, and I sort of, in, and I enjoy those digs that other comedians are James Corden, who I don't consider to be a comedian. <laughs> um, I, I I sort of I sort of enjoy that now, whereas before I was just thinking, "Come on, you can do better than this. This is bollocks." Um, you know. Well, so. particularly as, uh, as everyone seems to universally think that James Corden is amazing, and I, I kind of watched his um, 
his uh, sort of meteoric rise with kind of amusement. You know, he was, I quite liked him when he was a comic actor. Um, and then he just seems to have turned into this light entertainment sort of. Uh, well, I know he does this thing um, in America, but I, I never saw Gavin and Stacey and all this sort of thing. I just, it just didn't, it wasn't like part of my purview. So like, I just thought, why is he having a go at this fat lad? <laughs> <laughs> Face was so classic. He was like, (laughs) (laughs) all of the rakes. I mean, I didn't even think it would work that well. It was right on the edge of believability. By the same token, Russell Brand is another one that uh, everyone seems to love. Mm. um, That Stuart Lee is likes taking a pop at. I mean, personally, I'm fine with that because I find Russell Brand really tiresome. But um, I think that somewhat annoyed you initially. Uh, I think in that first series, he does do a riff on Russell Brand's wedding and makes it ridiculous uh, to Casey Perry. And I think it is quite funny. I think the thing is, is that Russell Brand, I, when I first came, when he first entered my consciousness, I saw him on presenting some NME awards on TV late at night. And I just thought, who is this total dickhead? And then hated him for ages. And then I accidentally while driving back somewhere in the car, listened to his radio show on Radio 2, the, the infamous Radio 2 show that was cancelled after Saxgate, the Andrew Sachs affair. Yeah. And he, I thought, no, this guy is actually very, very funny and he's really, really fast. His whimsy works better when he's ad-libbing than it does on, you know, with his stand-up or whatever. He did a... Um, you know, some sort of teenage cancer trust thing with all the comedians. Um, he did actually make me realise recently that that skit that he did, which was about Ian Huntley, the Soham murderer, right? And the fact, well, the newspapers. He was ta- he was taking the taking the newspapers to task because they were saying that the Soham murderer Ian Huntley in jail had turned to voodoo. And so his whole thing was, because they only get like two minutes on this thing anyway, because this is such yeah. a voodoo. His whole thing was, he's turned to voodoo. I mean, I liked him before that, before he turned <laughs> to voodoo. He was all right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like just the, the insanity of the newspapers. And what I like about that, and it made me realize recently, is like, that's why I don't have that little routine. It's quite a short routine. has always stuck in my mind. And it, it came to mind recently of why I don't like conspiracy theories. Right. Because, you know, whether it's QAnon or anything else, it doesn't matter. I don't like conspiracy theories because the reported facts are bad enough. You don't need the conspiracy around, you know what I mean? Yeah. The fact that, for instance, and, you know, obviously I support Joe Biden over Trump and Trump was a maniac. But the fact that, Biden has already started bombing Syria again. You, know, you don't need a conspiracy theory behind that. That fact alone is shit. Just like the problem with Ian Huntley is not that he's into voodoo. It's the fact that he murdered two mm. children. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. Do you know what I mean? The most relentlessly negative no, on both awful. side campaigns. I've got a genuinely very, very quick quiz, right? The, uh, as to who said it. If, do we say or do we go, right? The, uh, do we rain, do we leave? Uh, who threatened what, right? Uh, Britain be landed with a £2.4 billion pound bill. Is it if we remain or if we leave? That's leave. Nope, as if we remain. Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson, Britain lose 3 million jobs. If we remain or if we leave? Leave. 
Yeah, that's very good. That's what the Remain campaign said. The value of homes will drop by a fifth if we remain or if we leave. Oh, that was on Homes Under the Hammer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There'll yeah. be fewer curry chefs if we remain or if we leave. <laughs> there will be fewer remain. curry chefs. Uh, curry, we... that famously European dish. You stole our country, white people! <laughs> Carry on. Uh, if you say leave, it's if we remain. According to Preeti Patel, the leave campaign, they'll be starved of high-quality chefs by immigration policy. One of the things we mentioned earlier on about stand-up and why it can be off-putting is the, the, the sort of laddish, slightly braying, um, overconfident, ma- macho kind of uh, stage presence. I think the the sort of the rise of the comedy panel show vehicle for stand-ups who are a bit more comfortable and, and don't want to go out on the road so much is sort of the epitome of that in TV form. Um, whether it be mm-hmm. Mock the Week or um, 8 out of 10 Cats, or is it 9 out of 10 Cats? I can't remember. Um, 8 out of 10 Cats. I believe Stuart Lee's had a go at him the week anyway. He's got, <laughs> Probably, he's got yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's something about those programmes that just does my nutting. Uh, and, and maybe because it just seems like um, yeah, yeah. sort of lower sixth common room at a uh, minor public school or rather a, a private school um, mm. of like the lads. Um, and it generally is the lads. You know, you get sort of the odd woman allowed onto the program occasionally. I just find them really, really tiresome. Even though there is some very good, um, some very inventive, quick thinking um, ad libbing on there. I mean, they are sort of heavily scripted a lot of the time, but there's still quite a lot of ad libbing that goes on. Strangely enough, Bob Mortimer is a regular, um, uh, makes regular appearances on various comedy panel shows. But the the other participants in the shows often seem to be slightly in awe of um, his just totally out there inventiveness and like weird little stories that he comes out with. He is amazing. He is like a stand-up comic, but he sits down for it. (laughs) And he's never done stand-up himself, I think. He's always done this. He always says, but he's a brilliant raconteur. His stories on... um, would I lie to you? I just... That's it. Would I lie to you? And the his one, delivery yeah. is just amazing. Mm. There would have to be a gang of you. I would usually be with um, Stava and Bagger. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't realise you knew Hobbits. Neil <laughs> <laughs> overall, a, a Jerry Dungaree's son. Of course. <laughs> he didn't take his father's name. <laughs> So, and, and, and Gary Cheeseman would be there. So the reason he was called Cheesy is because his mum used to give him a cheese, you know, the cheese slice? Yeah. To take out with him yeah. when we were hanging around the shops what? and that, because she, she thought it was good for his spots. <laughs> she wanted to call some slice Surely it's because of his surname Cheeseman. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Cheesy, I mean, that was part of it. <laughs> well, Gary Cheeseman was a big lad. Yeah, a very big head. Sniper's dream, they used to call it. <laughs> what about um, your and my uh, favourite comic, Boris Johnson? Well, Johnson's career is very interesting, isn't it? Because obviously he started out on panel shows. Right, yeah. Chad's uh, news for you. 
which has been blamed for him um, becoming prime minister, which is obviously ludicrous. But but I don't actually remember Boris Johnson being especially funny on Have I Got News For You. Um, I think he was just sort of somewhat more characterful than the, the um, politicians you usually get. He seems like he's got a character that you could go... He's slightly baffled. You know, he's like he stepped out of the pages of P.G. Woodhouse. You know, that's what mm. he still tries to play even today. Yeah. Even after, you know, case of the vaccine, vaccinations is going well, but even after fucking up so much last year um, and basically trying to style it out like they all do. Um, I mean, in a way, maybe he is like a stand-up comedian. It's like for a year... In 2020, he kept repeating the same mistakes. He kept repeating the same joke. And it kept falling flat. And then he just, just kind of styled it out. He's just trying out new material, people right? After a while they, exactly. And then people, after a while, they just started clapping him because, you know, they just thought, well, the ball's on this guy. Come on. You know, he's lied his entire life to everybody. Maybe that's why I didn't watch many of those and briefings because it, it reminded me of bad stand-up comedy, you know, just made me uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Lecton comedy. It's like, yeah. I mean, when you, because that's the thing, I don't really like that guy. Who's his name? Dave Gorman? Yeah. Do you know Dave Gorman? I do, yeah. He does a lot of things with, sli- he does a lot of things with slides, doesn't he? And I think that's why I couldn't watch those uh, Downing Street briefings last year because there was, it was like, next, next slides, please. <laughs> so it was like watching Dave Gorman, but even worse. And it's like... Slideshow, we asked this Slideshow comedy. I hadn't realised that that was a thing, but um, uh, that's what Dave Gorman has brought us. I am deeply sorry for every uh, life that has been lost. And, of course, as, uh, as Prime Minister, I take full responsibility for everything that the government uh, has done. What I can tell you is that uh, we truly did everything we could and continue to do everything that we can uh, to minimise loss of life and to minimise suffering in what has been a very, very difficult stage. So talking about the machismo comedy, stand-up comedy, but also comedy and cruelty. So you've mentioned Frankie Boyle. But I think that comedy is always going to have an element of cruelty in you have these different comedians, and now you've got right-wing comedians like Jeff Northcott. Have you heard of this guy? Don't think so. He's constantly, he's constantly on the radio because he's like the only right-wing comedian that the BBC can muster up. Oh, I'm sure Brexit. I'm, I'm sure they can muster up a few more now. Yeah, I'm sure they can. But there is a trend for that. Which, I, but the thing is, I think that is this thing is that comedy shouldn't be circumscribed. You should be allowed to make mistakes and maybe offend people Mm. because the point of comedy is to disrupt. If it's any good at all, really is to disrupt your expectations. You know, that's how a a setup and a punchline works or whatever a pun works. It's, it's, it's disrupting what you're expecting from the language that you know, and all this sort of thing. Any social situation. So if you've got a very right wing social, like there was a, there was a story about Nish Kumar, who I do think is a good comedian. He was giving a stand up at some luncheon at the Dorchester Mm. and he had a go at Brexit. So then he started getting booed and heckled like massively and they go, get off, you know, and probably veering into racism or whatever the audience, you know, but I'm glad he did that. That's great. At the same time, 
I feel if I was in a very, I know woke is a pejorative, that's the thing these days, but if I was among a very woke crowd, or even Stuart Lee's crowd in his thing, I'd almost want to kind of push against it and say, do you yeah. know what I mean? In order to disrupt people's expectations. Not, 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 you know, not just use racial slurs or whatever it is, but just to try and disrupt what people are wanting from the crowd is wanting from the person on stage to go back to this thing about feeling uncomfortable with live comedy. It's like, I don't want to be part of a club that would have me as a member. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it, it gets too pally, even in things where, you know, Stuart Lee often like takes the piss out of his audience, you know, but it, it's a difficult thing to do. You know, the audience will still eat it up if they're still bought into the kind of, you know, they've bought the tickets or whatever. But that's the thing I think, because, you know, to get, you know, I did look at Freud only because we've got Freud at home, but like, you know, for, for we've Freud. We've all got Freud at home. Nick. We've all got Freud at home. Yeah. He's in my bed right now. Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, he says, like, for instance, um, the comic arises in the first instance as an unintended discovery derived from human social relations. And I think that's right, that you kind of discover something in a joke. You, rec- you might recognize something, but sometimes it's a really unusual, like in a, in a Michael McIntyre routine, but sometimes you'll discover something new you'll look at something completely differently and that's not necessarily progressively oh it's totally opened my eyes to how women feel in the world or whatever it could be very very personal subjective he also says things like um this isn't actually a direct quote This this is my notes like every successful joke indicates a victory against the inhibition that critical reason imposes on the normal waking psychic state you know, a lot of people who are progressive, like ourselves or whatever, or, or, you know, can't, you know, get very annoyed at right-wing comedians. But this is why right-wing comedians like Jeff Northcott, he, I just think he's shit, right? But this is why they succeed, because they're pushing again, a, a, they're pushing against a perceived, received notions of what is acceptable and what is allowed to say and what mm. might be the truth behind something. Now, it may be a load of shit, but that's what people are responding to. Do you know what I mean? That's why I think, you know, to use that dreadful term, political correctness, probably does have a chilling effect on humour because jokes rely on short-circuiting, short-circuiting like our prior learned assumptions and expectations of meanings and, and, and sort of social laws Okay, so we've we've talked about live stand-up, we've talked about recorded TV stand-up, we um, we haven't talked about um, movie comedy, um, and I'm thinking particularly the the unintentional humour of, of the great Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, <laughs> which is largely down to his his comically thick. Uh, <clears throat> actually, we have talked about this. So we talked about this in the last podcast. Um, his 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 thick Austrian accent, lending um, uh, comic overtones to uh, phrases like "give these people air." Where's that from? <laughs> Total Recall. Um, oh, is it okay? 
because he has a dis- steely determination to uh, deliver the funny line, somehow it ends up being funny. The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in a gym is the pump. Let's say you drain your biceps. Blood is rushing into your muscles, and that's what we call the pump. Your muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You had a great uh, idea about James Bond. This wasn't my idea. This was my daughter's idea. Because she's sort of seen a bit of James Bond on the TV, but she doesn't think much of it, quite rightly, really. It's like, this is just male fantasy and basically crap, isn't it, right? So this thing where James Bond does a quip after he's usually after he's killed someone. So mm. one of the Sean Connery's... Which is always quite a funny time, right? Yeah, it's like... If this was real life, you'd be going, why are you joking about this? This is appalling. You've just <laughs> shot that guy in the head. Right. But obviously it's fantasy. So like, he'll, I remember there's some Sean Connery one where he harpoons someone and then says to the lady that's with him, he got the point. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. You're so charming. I want to go to bed with you. No, I don't actually. You're a fucking maniac. <laughs> And then, but, but so Romy, so Romy's like thinking, why is this, why is he quipping like this? She's got a slight disjunct with this, um, this quipping. She doesn't really understand. It's like, why, why is that a good thing to do? <laughs> so she had this idea that actually he, he should um, go a bit one stage further and actually start to try and tell jokes. Right. To, you know, his lady loves or the henchmen or to Blofeld or M. So, like, he would say jokes, like, he would tell M, he would say, M's, like, debriefing him, and he'd say, um, M, did I tell you I went to a zoo that had only one animal, a little dog? And M's going, what? And then he says, it was a shit zoo. (laughs) (laughs) Like, really bad dad jokes like that, I think, would be brilliant. It would much more, much improve the solemnity of the day of the Daniel Craig era. And then, um, or, you know, another one like Blofeld before you kill me, do you know why I can't be buried in the cemetery? And Blofeld oh. said, exactly. Blofeld says, no. And he says, because I'm still alive and stuff like that. Or, you know, he just kind of, or there's another one like where he, like he's talking to, um, you know, so this latest. is Bond as played by Eddie Murphy, right? <laughs> no, this is Bond. Well, <laughs> this is Bond how he's played in my imagination, which is always, which is always by Roger Moore, always. So <laughs> Roger Moore would be saying things. He'd be with, um, he'd be with some lovely lady, and he'd say things like, um, "Did I tell you I went to Blockbuster Video the other day?" Like it's slightly out of date as well. <laughs> and she goes, "Oh yes," and it says, "Yes, I, I asked if I could rent Batman Forever." <laughs> and <laughs> and the, he doesn't and the, even need to deliver the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> and the staff went, "No, you have to bring it back tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> and, like, uh, that, that... and then and then and then and then like his his lady his lady is like going who the fuck is this person <laughs> i think we've discovered the cure for uh my my dislike or not my dislike but my slight discomfort around stand-up 
it's to get somebody to deliver stand-up routines in the context um, of a slightly foolish action movie. I think that's right. Listening to Calling the Night Boys with Gavin Nick. Today you heard audio from Shiny Happy People by REM with Kate Pearson of the B-52s, When I'm 64 by Lennon and McCartney of the Beatles, Peter and Jane by W. Murray, Maradona's Goal of the Century against England in the Mexico World Cup 1986, Gummo by Harmony Kareen, Mark Watson, Stuart Lee, Frankie Boyle, Mock the Week, created by Dan Patterson and Mark Leveson, Peter Rabbit the Movie, Not by Beatrix Potter, Would I Lie to You by Zeppotron for the BBC, BBC News, Pumping Iron by George Butler and Robert Fiore, and The Man with the Golden Gun, jazz version by John Barry. Please legally stream or download or buy a physical copy any of these clips, films, songs and TV programs and we'll see you again next time. Bye!